This is a 980 CKNW podcast. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. One of my favorite kinds of bank accounts is not the TFSA, not your checking account, not even your savings account. It is your emotional bank account. I first heard about this uh, when I was working as a manager of nurses and I realized I needed to have a lot of uh, a, a, or a very high balance in my emotional bank account in order to deal with 150 nurses and, and care aides and techs uh, because there's a lot going on. It's very busy and then the relationships are very important. And much like your personal relationship with your partner, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, depositing funds into the emotional bank account is as important as the air you breathe. After observing thousands of couples in the Gottman lab for more than four decades, they discovered that most couples were not arguing about specific topics like finances or sex or parenting or dealing with difficult in-laws. What they were in fact arguing about was a lack of an emotional connection, the failure to emotionally connect. And they didn't even realize this. And so instead of having productive conflict discussions about tangible issues, couples were really arguing about how one partner was not paying much attention to the other's needs, or they weren't expressing much interest in things that their partner cared about. Now, you're not going to be on the same page about everything, but it is nice to emotionally connect, to be heard. And the emotional bank account is one way to be heard. And if you're not heard, to be able to weather that little bit of a storm every now and again in your relationship. And so what happens is that couples turn away from each other instead of toward one another. So imagine you're having dinner and you're in your you're on you're both on your phones and you're texting somebody else. You're you're not turning toward one another. So you want to put down the phones, that's respectful, and that's actually making a small deposit into your emotional bank account. But say one of you had an issue at work that day and said, "Oh, I had another problem with the person who works for me, blah blah blah. He or she didn't do this or he didn't do that the correct way or she actually left early once again and you know or didn't turn up." And your partner doesn't even respond. We call that turning away. And so turning towards somebody can be as simple as a as simple as acknowledging what your partner has said to you. Oftentimes we're distracted, you know, uh, reasonably for or for whatever. You may have things going on in your life, and we're going to be talking about distraction later on in the program, but you can be distracted or not listening, or you can just be bored or not even bother or not realize that it's important. But it's really important to actually recognize what it is that your partner is upset about. And even with a simple statement like, oh, that's awful. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, That must be really frustrating for you. I know they've given you trouble in the past. This kind of response will let your partner know that you've listened and that you care about what they have to say, which will help build up some positivity in your relationship. But if you said nothing and just continued eating or continued texting somebody else, imagine how that other person would feel, just completely dismissed, or they may not go to you with their problems. And there's a risk there because they may emotionally connect with somebody outside of the relationship. And you know what happens there? The emotional relationships outside of a marriage are actually far more dangerous than the physical ones. But the physical one, the emotional one may actually lead to a physical relationship. So if you find that your partner's not listening to you, you won't feel very good. But if they give an indication 
that you're, or if you give an indication or they give an indication to you that they are listening, that they care about you and they care about what you have to say, you are going to feel more connected to your partner. And yes, you know what that leads to. That's exactly right. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in the program. The acts of turning toward one another are small, everyday gestures of appreciation. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for taking the garbage out, even though they've taken the garbage out 50 times in the last few months. Understanding, affection, kindness, just showing some gentleness, some just taking time away from your busy life, away from your attract, uh, uh, distracted life, um, showing some affection, that touching, that kissing, that hand-holding, that's very, very important. And it's your emotional bank account grows when you make more deposits than withdrawals. And so when you're, you're withdrawing, when you are nasty toward your partner, when you are mean, when you are not giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, for example, in conflict, you are withdrawing um, from this relationship. And we have a five to one ratio um, you know, kind of the magic number uh, is in terms of how much you should deposit into your relationship. So to be satisfied in a relationship, according to the Gottman Institute, couples must focus on increasing deposits, positive interactions, and minimizing withdrawals, negative interactions. During conflict, five positive interactions to every one negative interaction. And during everyday life, 20 positive interactions to every one negative interaction. And you have to be very mindful about this. When you're stressed, when you're having conflict, when there's a negative interaction, you can't expect as many positive interactions. So if you have five, you're doing pretty well. Because when you're in the heat of conflict, you're already in a negative state of mind. So the added negative, negative, um, negativity is to be expected. Um, you know, the five to one ratio does suggest that you still need to say and do five positive things for every negative thing, even during an argument. And that can be tough. I realize that for a lot of people, but how do you invest in your emotional bank account? Well, you need to be mindful. Couples often ignore each other's emotional needs out of mindlessness. It's certainly not malice. You might be busy with something else. It might be a long-term relationship. You might be bored with the same old problems, but you need to pay attention. So you want to be mindful of your partner's bids for connections, and you want to remember, turn toward them, not away. It will benefit you in the long run. Express appreciation every single day of your life. Think of all the ways your partner has turned towards you or made emotional bids. They can be as simple as texting your partner or your husband or your wife at work to say they hope you hope that their meeting went well or their day is going well. So it's really important to remember these positive deposits. Make a little lunch for your partner. Put a little note inside of the lunch. Um, you know, be ready for them when they come home, if you know what I mean. It's a little early in the show to talk about that, but we get into that a little bit later. Uh, it's so important to talk about the stress in your life and communicate um, understanding of, you know, what each other is going through. Uh, and as I mentioned, the kissing, the holding hands, hugging, cuddling, touch, all opportunities to make deposits into your emotional bank account. The normal bar study of more than 70,000 people in 24 countries found that couples who have a great sex life kiss one another passionately for no reason whatsoever. They cuddle and they are mindful about turning toward. 
So if you don't have a rich emotional bank account right now, maybe you've built up a lot of resentments, start small by noticing your partner's bids. Go away from yourself. Get out of yourself. Because oftentimes many people can become self-absorbed or or look what he or she has done to me. I'm so hurt. I have this resentment. Turn toward them again and again and again as much as you possibly can. Bid by bid, your interactions will positively sculpt your relationship until your emotional bank account represents the wealth of love and respect that you have for one another and what better memories can you build than those. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the birth control pill and the risk of depression in adulthood. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse. I was very intrigued when I saw this recent research study called Teen Birth Control Use Linked to Depression Risk in Adulthood. Women who used oral contraceptives during adolescence were more likely to develop depression as adults, which is what was suggested in this new research out of the University of British Columbia. Dr. Christine Andel joins me on the line. She co-authored the study. Thank you so much for joining me on the line, Dr. Andel. Hi, thank you very much for your interest. This is a very interesting study. Many girls become sexually active in um, teenagehood and adolescence. Um, they also may use the birth control pill for other reasons like um, excessive acne um, or yeah, I- issues with their skin or issues with their periods. So tell me a little bit about this study and um, why we should be concerned. So... Um We found in our study that, as you already correctly said, that teenage birth control pill use was linked to later depression risk, so depression risk in adulthood. And what we did to to find that was we analyzed data on more than 1,200 women, and uh, we had information about whether they had used birth control pills as teenagers or later on or never used them. And uh, they also went through a diagnostic procedure for depression. And what we found when we analyzed this data set was that um, women who had used the pill as teenagers were in between 1.7 to even three times more likely to be clinically depressed in adulthood later on. Um, So you ask me why that should concern us. So uh, the numbers per se seem concerning, of course. Uh, At the same time, I would like to say that uh, while we did statistically control for every single variable in the data set that we felt might provide a plausible alternative explanation for the relationship, um, this was an observational study. So we cannot say for sure whether there is indeed a causal link, so whether use of uh, birth control pills indeed causes depression. So there will need to be more studies on that to to be able to say that for sure. Right. But it's an excellent groundwork that you have developed here. And, and it's something that we need to look into because there's such an increase in rates of depression, uh, especially mm-hmm. in North America. And depression can affect a person's relationships, a person's perhaps risk of postpartum depression after they've had a baby. Um, Perhaps they can have more challenges in life. It may impact their professional life as well. And depression isn't straightforward, is it? Um, The symptoms Uh, aren't the same in everyone. 
That is definitely true, yes. And depression is also a physical illness. So many people, not just women, may experience other symptoms. What are some of the other physical symptoms that women or men may experience uh, when they are experiencing depression? So women might, for example, or also men might, for example, um, have problems sleeping. Um, They might also show a reduction of physical movement. They might feel restless. Um, They might um, experience weight loss or weight gain. So there are indeed a couple of of, uh, more physical uh, symptoms for depression as well. Right. And some people may experience physical symptoms like abdominal pain or or joint ache or difficulty getting out of bed in the morning. Uh, that seems to be a very mm-hmm. common one. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have difficulty going through life with depression or they may be chronically depressed. And, and since there's a stigma with depression, um, you know, and it's also extremely difficult for people who have depression to get the treatment that they need. Would you say that's correct? I do think that's unfortunately still correct. Yeah, there is still a stigma, and that's that's really a pity because uh, depression is just an illness like many others as well, and while we don't have a problem going to the doctor, going to see a doctor when we break our leg, for example, unfortunately a lot of people still feel kind of ashamed when, when they are depressed and, and yeah, unfortunately then they, they won't get help and won't get treatment. And, and marriages break up as a result of untreated depression and relationships with family and children can be impacted when a parent has um, uh, depression, experiences depression. And oftentimes people don't even know what's happening to them uh, when they have yeah. depression. That is definitely true, too, yes. Yeah, and so in terms of treatments for depression, we've come a long way uh, in terms of treatment, but a lot of people will say they don't want to um, try medication for depression. But there's a lot of other things that people can do prior to taking medication. Uh, But if they need medication, you know, they need medication. (laughs) And it's about quality of life. Um, But what are some of the things that uh, you, in, in perhaps your research, have found Uh, have been beneficial for depression? So unfortunately, I'm not an expert on on depression per se, so I'm really more coming from the hormonal side of of the whole story. But um, what, as far as I know, what can be really helpful is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So actually talking to a psychologist and doing certain certain exercises with them and... uh, like you said, uh, certain types of medication can be incredibly helpful too, and uh, some of them have side effects too, but and not all work for everyone, but overall there are really a couple of different, different methods that can help you get out of depression. Exactly, and, and not uh, to forget exercise is also um, quite helpful. That, yes, yes, absolutely. 30 minutes of exercise um, each day is as good as... Um, any antidepressant for mild to moderate depression. Interesting you mentioned the cognitive behavioral therapy, which I think is great. Um, Many people don't realize or they're still too embarrassed to go and speak to somebody because they view depression as a weakness. 
When mm-hmm. you mentioned hor- your research is in hormones, and hormones fluctuate for people throughout life at different stages of their reproductive life and, and once their reproductive life ends, like during the, peri- me- during the menopause and, and the years after. Um, so uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy can be so beneficial uh, for people to talk about their issues with somebody else, just to offload that. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and I think you make a great point in terms of... Now, do you study um, depression in perimenopausal or menopausal women as well? I do not, but other other people here at UBC do. Right, because it's also another time um, when Absolutely. women can experience depression. So it can be situational, or it can be hormonal, it can be genetic. There are so many yes. causes for it. And typically it's a mix of, of a couple of factors. So it's not a single factor that that is responsible for, for making you depressed. It's typically really a combination of factors that, that make you vulnerable to, to getting depressed. Absolutely. And it's like the perfect storm in a way, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Certain things come together or, you know, somebody may experience a loss. They may be um, in the menopausal years. They may have a lot of stress at work. Mm -hmm. And so all of this can lead to anxiety and depression. Yes, that's true. Yes. Well, Dr. Christine Undel, I really appreciate um, your coming on the program this evening. And um, and sorting us out in terms of this latest research study. I think it's important, especially as the kids are heading back to school um, this time of year, because this might be something that parents are are thinking about for their um, daughters, teen birth control use linked to depression risk in adulthood. And just one more question. If do you think that if there's a family history of depression, this may increase the risk even that much more? Um, That's, a bit premature to say. So in general, since it's always a combination of factors, uh, if there is indeed a link between birth control pill use, like if there is indeed a causal link between that and depression, um, I would assume that if you add further risk factors, it just puts you at a higher risk. But uh, so far, there is no study backing this up for the combination of family history of depression and birth control pill use. But in general, it's typically true for depression that the more uh, risk factors you combine, the higher your risk typically is. Well, thank you so much. That's Dr. Christine Andel. She is the co-author of the study Teen Birth Control Use Linked to Depression, Risk, and Adulthood. Thank you very much for joining me this evening and for sharing your information. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. We are heading back to school, and you know what? It's time for everyone to learn, not just children. Some of your children may or may not have been diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or attention deficit disorder, otherwise known as ADHD and ADD. Well, I have the guru of adult ADHD and ADD on the line with me. Dr. Gurdeep Parhar has joined me. He is the medical director of the Adult ADHD Center with offices in Vancouver, British Columbia and Burnaby, British Columbia as well. He is a clinical professor in the UBC Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Parhar's clinical practice focuses on patients with severe 
physical and psychological disabilities. Dr. Parhar teaches extensively in the area of disability at UBC and Simon Fraser University to medical students, residents, insurance case managers, practicing physicians, and other healthcare professionals. In 2010, he received the BC College of Family Physicians Teacher of the Year Award. In 2011, Dr. Parhar was awarded a UBC Killam Teaching Prize, which is the university's top and most prestigious award. And in 2012, his alma mater, the University of Calgary, recognized Dr. Parhar with its top alumnus of distinction award. Dr. Parhar, thank you so much for joining me on the line to talk about adult ADHD and the importance of identifying this. Thank you, Maureen, and thank you for uh, giving time to such an important topic. It's a very important subject, and many people may suffer needlessly and in secret and in shame. They may not have been diagnosed. What is the prevalence of adult ADHD in the general population? Brilliant question. So, um, you know, most of us, and this is one of the biggest challenges, it isn't just, uh, as you said in your introduction, um, it's something that is missed by patients and family members in the community, but we as healthcare providers, nurses and physicians and psychologists and pediatricians, we often don't catch it either, and we aren't often not thinking about it. And one of the challenges is that, you know, I've been in practice 26 years and graduated um, medical school in the early 1990s, and we weren't, we, ADHD was thought to be primarily a childhood disease. And to answer your question, we believe that 5 to 8%, 5 to 8%, so 1 in 20, roughly, um, of, of um, the general uh, child and adolescent population has ADHD. So we think 5 to 8% of children and adolescents have it. 3 to 5% of the adult population has it. So even if you look at the higher end of that, 3 to 5% of the general population. So if you're sitting in a room or in a meeting with 20 people, it's likely that at least one person out of the 20 has adult ADHD. One of the challenges is that when we were in our training, um, we were taught, as I said, start to say, is that ADHD was only only happened in childhood. You know, in my training in a Canadian medical school, I received one hour on ADHD teaching, and even that was in pediatrics, and so one hour for my entire training. So I have to say quite embarrassingly, for the last 25 years, 20 years of my early part of my practice, I wasn't identifying ADHD in adults at all because I never thought that it was something that happened in adults. What we know now is that um, on your 18th birthday, um, when you blow those candles out at 18, the ADHD doesn't go away for the majority of people. There's nothing magical about those 18 candles. Um, So what we're thinking is that um, of the children with ADHD, 70 to 85% continue to have ADHD into adolescence. And then of those who have um, ADHD in adolescence and teenage years, 60% continue to have it in adulthood. So um, what we're realizing now is that there's a lot of adults out there that just haven't been diagnosed and are sort of fumbling through life and really struggling. And um, that was why we started this um, initiative to have an adult ADHD center in Vancouver and Burnaby to identify um, those that are being missed in the community. And there are different types of or subtypes of adult ADHD and ADD. What are some of those subtypes? Yeah, so when we think about ADHD, and you don't have to be a physician or a nurse or a psychologist, you know, when you think of a child with ADHD, you think of them being very hyperactive or bouncing off the walls and not being able to sit still. And yes, that is a common type, especially in children, which is termed the hyperactive um, type or the impulsive type of ADHD. We find that that's fairly common in children, but there's another type called the inattentive type. So, so basically, the easy way to think of it is people can have the, the hyperactive uh, type of ADHD. 
You can have the inattentive type where you just have decreased attention, or you can have a combination of the two. So there's really three types of ADHD. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I don't have ADHD. I, I can sit through um, a movie and I'm not very hyperactive. Well, you can sit through the movie, um, but are you actually paying attention to the movie? So what we're finding is that adults typically don't have um, or have less of the hyperactive type of ADHD. So another way to explain it is, as a, as a family physician, if I walk into the room and the child in the room has taken my room apart, the paper's strewn down, the magazines are thrown everywhere, the tongue depressors are on the floor, um, you know, it doesn't take a physician to, or a nurse to say, I wonder if your child has ADHD. Now, I walk into a room, Maureen, and, um, and I'm seeing you, although I'm pretty sure you would never see me as a patient, and you've done that to my room, you've taken it apart. <laughs> I, I, I would give you a look, right? I would, say, I would give you that look, like, what, what the heck are you doing? And so we believe that a lot of those hyperactive behaviors in adults be, are socially unacceptable. And because they're socially unacceptable, adults tend to be less hyperactive. And so what's left, however, is the intentive type in adults. So adults that are struggling with inattentive ADHD tend to be the ones that, you know, they'll be having a conversation, and even though they're making eye contact, their mind is wandering. Um, they'll be in a meeting, and their mind is already somewhere else. They'll be trying to read a book or a passage. You mentioned going back to school. Even, even university students would qualify as adults now because they're past 18. You know, reading a passage in a book or paying, trying to pay attention to a professor, and your mind is wandering somewhere else. So the inattentive is what we see more in adults, um, and, 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 and that's the more prevalent type in adults. Having said that, um, the hyperactivity part in adults doesn't totally disappear. And Maureen, with all your other um, expertise in, in, in health, you'll recognize that there are adults that do impulsive things and do irrational things. So what we're finding with adults with ADHD is, yes, they may be inattentive, but some of the hyperactivity changes into risk-taking behavior. So if you know of any adults who are experimenting with recreational drugs or um, binge drinking of alcohol, um, weekend warrior, you know, doing um, um, physical activities that are just beyond their scope, road rage, um, online shopping, um, online or addictive gambling, um, um, as people call the one-night stands or um, um, short relationships, um, um, uh, online porn, anything that they recognize that they shouldn't be doing and are, in, uh, and are normally accepted as risky behavior are also a, a common symptom of adults with ADHD. So it's not just the inattentive in adults, but the impulsive or risk-taking behavior is what the hyperactivity has changed to. So what we're finding is that a lot of people who are um, struggling with things like substance abuse, and it's a huge problem, that they're often undiagnosed ADHD that is leading them to the substance use. Right, and a lot of relationship problems can occur as a result of this, and you've actually taught me to think about adult ADHD when I see some of these issues uh, in couples who present to my clinical practice. What's the male-to-female ratio for ADHD and ADD? So in children, um, more boys, little boys, are um, um, identified than little girls. And unfortunately, the data back when it was collected was binary, so it didn't include the transgender population, which who also need to be studied. But generally, what, we, what we're finding is that more boys get identified than females, so 2.5 to 1 times. In adults, it's 1 to 1. Um, so Maureen, before I answer that question as to why more boys get identified than little girls, any, any guesses from your perspective? Uh, socialization or... <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> close, close. So what happens is 
the little boys tend to be a little bit more hyperactive, whereas the little girls with ADHD tend to be more inattentive. So little Johnny um, is driving the teacher nuts. You know, he's not sitting still. He's disruptive. He gets pulled into the hallway. Um, he's always down at the principal's office. Um, so the teacher's going crazy, and the teacher says to the parent, get Johnny checked out. I think he has ADHD. Little Jane, on however, is quiet, very pleasant, and daydreaming. She's right. looking out the window, and um, she's watching that pretty little leaf. The leaf falls to the ground. Right. There's another leaf. Yeah. Or there's a squirrel, and the squirrel runs across the tree. So Jane's report card will say, a pleasant to have in my class, but would probably do better if she focused more. So what happens is that the little boys get the attention and get diagnosed more than little girls do. Now, the sad part there is that when these uh, women, the little girls grow up to be women in adolescence or as women, you see them in adulthood, they're often underdiagnosed because they haven't gotten the attention that the boys did. Exactly. Um, and yet they've struggled and just gone under the radar because they're very pleasant. They're very pleasant. And, and, and you have to be careful not to stereotype and generalize because there are little girls who are also hyperactive and disruptive and there's boys that are inattentive. So there is that uh, crossover. But generally what we find is that the reason boys get identified is that they, they tend to be more disruptive and bothersome than the little girls are. Exactly. That's what I was wondering. Was, was, were the girls more inattentive? That, because that has certainly been my experience. Dr. Gurdip Parhar is going to... Stay on the line with me because we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the symptoms of inattention and the symptoms of hyperactivity and and how this may impact your life from a behavioral perspective, a legal perspective, relationship perspective, and academia as well. So, Dr. Gardeep, if you don't mind hanging on the line with me, uh, when we come back after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. This is Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am joined on the line by Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He is the medical director of the Adult ADHD Center with offices in Vancouver and Burnaby, British Columbia. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Parhar. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So we're talking about adult ADHD and ADD, and, and many people go undiagnosed out there. Um, they may have troubles in life, though. They may have persistent issues or chronic problems with their jobs. They may have a number of jobs where they might get fired from jobs because they might be raging at their jobs or they might have they make, might make careless mistakes at work. What are some of the other symptoms of the inattentive type of adult ADHD? Um, great question, Maureen. And, and as you've said, it's often easier to cluster them into the inattentive type and then later on we can talk about the hyperactive or impulsive type. The inattentive, as, as you've said, often what this means is that the, patient, the person or the patient, isn't, the adult isn't paying enough attention um, to what they're, whatever they're supposed to be doing. So if, if you're speaking to them, their mind is wandering. Um, they often do not follow through on instructions. They have difficulty organizing tasks. So if you think about some adults in your life that are like this, Think about the person who has the six IKEA projects in the house, right? They, they, and before they finish any one of them, the boxes are open. There's Allen wrenches everywhere. But before they finish any of those six, they've gone to the store and bought another project. You know, the ones that are great starters but not finishers, they'll often forget and lose things. They'll lose their keys. They'll lose their wallet. They'll misplace their cellular phone. Um, they often forget to pay things like bills and, 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 t- and attend appointments. So it's, it's always being distracted and mind being somewhere else. And as adults, it has consequences. And unfortunately, we often write it off to, oh, that person's just scrambled, 
or that person just a bit disorganized. And it's important to think they may have an underlying adult ADHD or ADD, if you drop the H part, just the attention deficit part, um, disorder that's actually leading to these symptoms. Absolutely. And they might be scattered, which is they, we might say they're scattered, but in fact, they are often scattered. What are some of the symptoms of the hyperactivity, impulsivity type of adult ADHD? So if you can think about that they're always on the go, they have difficulty sitting through meetings. So if there's a meeting going on and, you know, it's it's the person who says, you know, I have to stand because my back hurts. Now, truthfully, their back may hurt, but a lot of times it's because they just can't sit still. Often their their leg will shake. Now, your leg can shake for a bunch of other reasons, but or they're, or they're playing with something. Um, one of the jokes I often tell is this will be the person who goes into the grocery store and fills their little basket or their um, grocery cart with items. They'll spend 45 minutes shopping. Then they get to the checkout counter. They see a lineup. They cannot wait in the counter. They can't wait in lineup. So they'll often, if, if you see them, they'll drop their basket and they'll go to start in the grocery cart and they'll leave the store. Um, because they can't, the, the idea of waiting just isn't, isn't um, something they can handle. They're hyperactive, they're impatient. They're often people who finish your sentences or will interrupt you. Their entire life is like a Jeopardy game, right? And so before somebody finishes asking you a question, they will, immediate, they will interrupt them and they're disruptive in, in their conversation style. Um, and they talk excessively, a bit like I am right now. But they, they continue to talk. They, they talk and they can talk nonstop and continuously. So, so that's one of the challenges with them. And if you talk to them and you really listen to what they're saying, so what's the struggle? It's like, I can't seem to calm down. I feel like there, I, I, just, I can't relax. I feel like I always need to go. Now, it's really interesting. A lot of people will, quote, unquote, self-treat by constantly exercising, running around all the time. And, you, and you've seen people like this in your life where, where they can't sit still and they have to run for an hour, jog for an hour and a half or something. And yes, exercise is good. And as a physician, I'm never going to say not to exercise. But are you doing it to self-exhaust yourself because you've got all this built-up energy that you just can't expend? And so the good news is that for both of these things, the inattentive type and the hyperactivity type, there are treatments. And Marina, you know, often we think about work and school, but you really were accurate when you said it affects relationships. Many times the couple comes in and the partner who doesn't have the ADD or ADHD says, we need to do something because he or she is not on the same page with me. Um, and it does. People go from relationship to relationship, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. They go from job to job. They're often um, put on academic probation and dropping out of school. And one of the reasons that we've gotten into this work is that we have been um, really troubled with these patients and these people in the community, uh, the adults with ADHD, being told that they're lazy, that they're dumb, that they're not going to amount to anything um, because they just can't stay focused. And the truth of it is, it's a condition that, that needs treatment. Um, and what bothers me more than other people saying this about people with ADD, adults with ADD, is a lot of times people with ADD, ADHD start to believe it themselves. Right. That's, that's the saddest part. So what is the treatment? What is some of the medical treatment for these patients with adult ADHD or adult ADD? So the first is um, just awareness and and coming to the diagnosis. Before we even start the treatment, in our clinic, um, because we see high volume, a lot of times patients just start crying. I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. So just an awareness and education about what the condition is. And then secondly, we, we leave the medicines for a bit, but we start on things like counseling and other behavioral things and structural supports. Our little smartphones can often organize our lives and, and add structure to these people's lives who are otherwise, as, as we've said, kind of disorganized and a bit scattered. 
And then thirdly is medications do succeed in this group and and they're extremely successful. Now, it's a little bit counterintuitive when you think about depression or anxiety or other disorders where we say do a lot of counseling and work-life balance and, and lead a balanced lifestyle and good diet. And, and if, if that doesn't work, we'll come to medicine as a last resort. In this group, we come to medicines uh, much earlier on because the medicines are so effective. So what we think is happening with ADHD is that the neurotransmitters or the signals between the brain cells um, called dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, we think that they're not, they're not, those messages aren't getting across enough. And so what the medications do is they increase the, the, the ability of the nerve cells or the brain cells to speak to one another. And the medications work really well. Now the long-acting ones you take in the morning and the medication works the, the extent of the day. And it has profoundly changed a lot of people's lives. It's fantastic. It's fantastic work that you're doing. And I know that you send the patients back to their general practitioners or their family physicians with recommendations on what to prescribe and and what other behavioral strategies to utilize uh, so that they have success in their adult lives. Yeah, our um, goal has always been, as I said at the beginning of our session, was that there isn't enough awareness, not just among patients and family members in the community, but also amongst um, healthcare providers. Thank you so much, Dr. Gurdeep Parhar, Medical Director of the Adult ADHD Center with offices in Vancouver and Burnaby, British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining me this evening, Dr. Parhar. Thank you, Maureen. This is a great opportunity. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.